The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Yo. And our special guest, Chad. I have my bag of dice and giant soda bottle ready. That's so Canadian, Chad. (laughs) Tonight, we are going to be talking about role-playing games, specifically tabletop role-playing games, something that uh, Don, Chad, and I all have in common. We all played them when we were younger. We all played them for mm, probably about maybe up to 20 years of our lives. And uh, we thought that we'd do kind of an overview of what tabletop role-playing games are, where they came from, what our experiences were with them, and uh, where they've gone and maybe where they're going. So this is going to be a bit of an overview episode. And then later on, we'll probably do some more specific episodes about, say, things like fantasy gaming or horror gaming or other things like that but we want to just kind of touch on the subject in general first and talk about our own experiences are you you okay with that guys yeah sure i can live with that yep okay sounds good (laughs) all right so on that note don why don't you tell us what's a tabletop role-playing game uh the easiest way i think and this is kind of ironic is to go backwards because everybody's familiar with computer role-playing games Mm mm-hmm where you'll make up a character, say a team, you go out, you do things. As you do things, your characters gain some kind of points. As they gain points, they level up, they get new abilities, their stats go up, etc., etc., etc. Tabletop role-playing game is that without the computer. My God, what do you use instead of the computer? <laughs> How can you do things without a computer? <laughs> well, the way they, they uh, work is one person takes the role of... That, that the computer would be doing, and that would be your game master or dungeon master or keeper of arcane lore or storyteller, whatever. Every game basically has a different term for it. Mm-hmm. And that's the person that comes up with the adventure. They um, would run all of the non-player characters. They arbitrate the application of the rules. And then all of the other participants would make up one character who would be like your character in a video game or a character in a movie, mm-hmm. and they run that character through the scenarios the Game Master creates and provides. That sounds about right, yeah. It's basically a giant game of let's pretend. Yeah. With or, someone actually acting as a referee. Yeah, basically. Hmm. That's... Or just, you know, you can think of it as like a game of Monopoly where you can kill each other. <laughs> you can think of it that way, too, and that's happened a few times. Yes, yeah, so you guys never did that in your Monopoly game? <laughs> Not usually, Don, but... Um... Jeez, Rob, how did you play Monopoly? <laughs> well, we played it cutthroat, but cutthroat in the business sense, not cutthroat in the literal sense. <laughs> what kind of cards did you have like that involved... Oh, never mind. I don't want to know. All right. So since you've gone forward and back again, let's um, start again at the beginning and um, go with this. So the first official role-playing game, at least as they're considered, was, of course... Dungeons and Dragons, or, 
or was it Chainmail at that time? No, Chainmail was the war game, and then D and D was the role playing version. Correct? Yeah, you've kind of hit on um an an important and kind of mercurial distinction is there's tabletop role playing games, tabletop war games. Mm. Uh, the war games came first. Yes, and they worked very similar because you've mentioned Chainmail. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a straight up war game, and in a war game, each participant would build up a force like. You don't generally control one character. You'd have a team or a group or an army, mm-hmm. and you'd fight it out. Right. And everybody is competing against each other, and the rules arbitrate that. Um, that's one of the big differences in a role-playing game. You usually only have one character, right? and you're not generally fighting the rest of the group. You're su- it, it's like the characters in a, in a movie. You're supposed to be working together towards a common goal. In theory. In theory, yes. In reality, as all three of us know, that did not always occur. No. But in theory, yes. Uh, we were all supposed to be working together, and we were all supposed to be uh, trying to accomplish some kind of common goal and our own personal goals, depending on the nature of the game. Sure. There are games, that are, of course, that are competitive. Yeah. Of course, tabletop wargaming technically goes back to, like, uh, that would be Go, probably. Wei Chi, depending on what you want to call it, uh, which could technically be considered the first tabletop war game. At least it's the oldest one that we know of anyway. There might be older ones. Yeah. It would eventually evolve to chess. And in the beginning of the 20th century, H.G. Wells, who was uh, famous for War of the Worlds, also wrote one of the very first tabletop war game manuals called mm-hmm. Little Wars, I believe it was called. Yep. And that was written basically for people to use their toys like little tin soldiers to um have little floor wars with and blow the crap out of each other yep uh there's one older there is one older yeah generally the uh the the progenitor for what we think of a tabletop war game would be a kriegspiel kriegspiel that just sound that just sounds awesome <laughs> it kind of was it was uh i think it comes out from around the napoleonic era mm-hmm and it was rules for, for modern warfare. It was an attempt to take actual war and break it down into stats. And then it was meant as a way for, for military officers to develop their leadership skills by actually fighting the wars out. Makes sense. Makes sense. I'm surprised that there weren't earlier versions, or maybe there probably were, but we just they were passed on by maybe oral tradition instead of written down. Yeah, they could. Kriegsfield is generally considered the, uh, the first of them. Okay, I bow to your nerdly historical knowledge. <laughs> All right, then. So let's jump back forward in time. So in uh, the early 1970s, uh, Gary Gygax and Dave Armisen, I believe it is, basically started playing this game that they called Chainmail, which was a standard miniatures war game. But they started adding fantasy elements to it that were basically right out of Lord of the Rings. It was basically an attempt to do Lord of the Rings, the tabletop war game. And then eventually they expanded it to include, like, kind of stats and decided to create this dungeoneering version where the characters would go into a dungeon and, like, fight monsters and such, I believe it went. And that basically turned itself into Dungeons & Dragons Zero Edition or whatever you want to call it, which very few people have seen, I think. It's actually four... Three. No, sorry. Three digest-size... I don't even. I can't even call them paperbacks. They're almost, they're like really thick pamphlets, basically. Yeah, kinda. You're you're talking uh, what's usually called the white box version. Is that what that's called? Okay. Yeah, that was the first the the very first one. 
because I have seen them. A mutual friend of Chad and mine actually had copies of them, though God knows what he did with them. They probably got <laughs> thrown out long ago, even though they're mega collector's items probably at this point. Uh, but somehow his parents, who were garage sailors, managed to snag a couple. So I actually do remember sitting there looking at them. But, of course, I didn't think much of them at the time because we were already like at AD&D by that point. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Right. All right. So uh, they create Dungeons & Dragons. It goes on to be a hit. And uh, suddenly college kids all across the United States are playing Dungeons & Dragons, casting magic spells with dice, and worshipping Satan. Well, that yeah, that comes a little later. Because okay. D&D was kind of just like, a, I don't want to say a cult thing, because that gives the wrong There ideas. we go. See, yeah. the truth. The truth has been revealed, <laughs> children. The truth has been revealed. Because <laughs> that was, uh, when, when I started playing, I started playing around 77, <clears throat> 78. Mm-hmm. It was still pretty much like an unknown thing. Not Un- 6, 6, 76? <laughs> yeah. Well, that comes <laughs> that comes when you get to like seventy nine, eighty, when the protests started, and we found out it was bad for you. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it took off, and it was everywhere. Well, because anything that's bad for you is awesome. Yep. At least according yeah, but to wasn't the that sparked? Uh, oh, sorry, wasn't that sparked by that kid going nuts on the university campus? Yes, it was. Yeah. Although, again, in the end, we did a whole episode on that. Of course, D and D and Satanism, but. It basically amounted to that the the kid disappeared. He had, like, major issues. And the one private investigator his parents hired said, well, he plays D&D. Maybe it has something to do with that. And he said it to the local media. Now, he didn't even know what oh, D&D really? was. Uh, I actually heard. I remember reading about this. And they. I think it was the parents that had sort of assert, like, had put forth this idea that, that D&D had caused it. And the, the, the private investigator, after doing his investigation, went, no, it isn't. It has nothing to do with that. And they're like, yeah, well, we like that idea better, so we'll go to the media with that. Like, I heard the even the detective said there was really nothing, there was no correlation between the two. Okay, there might be, I, that's not the story I heard or read, but hmm. it's possible that that could be correct. Um, either way, it was complete BS. But yeah. it was still enough that the media ran with it, and suddenly D&D was the most evil thing ever. Mm-hmm. All right. So for each of us, I assume D&D was our first game. Is that correct? Chad, was it your first oh, game? Oh, it was for me. Yes. Yep. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm assuming it was for... Well, yeah, it was for me. It was for you, too. Yeah. Right? Uh, D&D not? was the first game. Technically, of course, AD&D, because we'll get to that in a second, But because uh, <laughs> I'm a second generation gamer. And I assume, Don, same for you? Yeah, except mine was the uh, the, the first one we played here was the weird... Everybody remembers the red box, basic mm-hmm. D&D. That was, yeah, that was mine. Yep. And the white box is the first one. There was kind of a weird, they, I've seen it referred to as like the blue box version that came between. Right. Uh, actually, that was, I think that was mine, actually. I think mine was the blue box. Yeah, well, there's the blue box that was the expert rules that were the second part of the red, like mm-hmm. the red ones. Right. And then there's one, it has a dragon rearing up, so its wings are kind of like a T. Right, and a bunch of hmm. little guys scrambling. That was the one that we started with here. Hmm. Okay. See, when I was a kid, I remember seeing the the, the box in. It was actually in the toy store. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was nestled in with all the other games, like you know, Monopoly and Sorry and all these other ones. And there it was. And so I asked my parents for it. And they bought it for me for Christmas. And I immediately upon opening it, had no idea what the hell it was. <laughs> 
Right. Like I didn't under I, I didn't understand it uh, until I had to sit down and gave it a couple of reads. Went oh okay, and then immediately realized it's like oh you need people to play this with. Like you can't kind of play it by yourself. Like you have to have other like like minded people that also understand the game to play it. Mm-hmm. So it was actually a few years before I actually got the opportunity to play with some people hmm. that I knew at school. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds about right. I played it at friends' uh, birthday party. Um, a friend actually had a birthday party, and I was, what, maybe 11 or 12, and they pulled out this D&D game, and so we all were supposed to play. And to be honest, I didn't like it at all. I thought it was, like, the most boring, stupid thing ever. Weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I, I, I really didn't like it at all. But I thought, okay, fine, I'll go along with this. It wasn't until years later, but we'll get to that, that, um, that another type of role play, that I found a kind of role playing that, you know, uh, really touched my heart. Um, how about you, Don? How did you get into? Uh, oh, so what was your first exposure to D and D then? Well, I'm just thinking. I don't know if uh, you guys watch Gravity Falls. Oh yeah, have um, you seen? Not me. Sorry, because Rob is pretty much just like living the D and D episode of that. <laughs> it combines all the fun of homework with doing your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> You gotta try this, Grunkle Stan. It's like lying. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a really great episode that you can tell the people that worked on it like clearly had a background in playing these kind of games. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like you can always those are always giveaways when you see that done in the show, and it's clear that the people behind the episode had no idea what the hell it was. Because but whereas this thing rings so true, it's it's almost terrifying. (laughs) Wait a sec, wasn't Gravity Falls done by Dan Harmon? No. You're thinking of um, Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty. I'm. I thought that Dan Harmon had something to do with Gravity Falls. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I thought. No, no. I think uh, Gravity Falls is. Uh, I can't remember his name now. <laughs> the guy who created it. Because I know Dan Harmon was involved with Community, and Community had D and D episodes to it. Yes, they did. No, it's Ale- Alex Hirsch. Alex is the Hirsch. name of the guy. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, okay. Okay. I'm wrong. Yeah. I'm off. Sorry. <laughs> my my bad. But but here, I mean, these guys are from our generation, right? Yeah. And people of our generation tended to, almost everyone of our generation, like I would say the majority of people at least tried it once. They might not have done it on a regular basis, but they at least tried it. Because for a while there, it was the in thing. Yeah, kind. I mean, I don't know if I'd say try, but they would have at least heard of it or knew somebody who played. Like, Okay, yeah. It wasn't a weird, mysterious thing. Mm, exactly. So D&D... Um, exploded uh did very yeah. well which of course led to a whole bunch of imitators yeah um there were several imitators to go along with it um let's see what were the er- what were the early ones uh, so we had traveler which was the first science fiction role-playing game nope the first science fiction role-playing game mm-hmm. was metamorphosis alpha oh you're right it was wasn't which it which hardly anybody had ever heard of which is why you're everybody right. okay and most people who are <laughs> listening to this probably don't even know what Metamorphosis Alpha is. I they mean, might. I was about. I was going to say, Don, is that why most people quote Traveler as the first? <laughs> time? That's probably why. <laughs> Pretty. They did for a bit, but Metamorphosis Alpha had a a comeback. Mm-hmm. If you look at the era of gaming, we're currently in like the era of bring back stuff for role playing games. Right. Mm-hmm. So Metamorphosis Alpha had like four editions, and now there's guys who brought back the very original. Hmm. And are doing material for the original one that came out in 1976. Wow. And, and for uh, people that are listening to this, I have no idea what Metamorphosis Alpha is. In terms of the story of it or the setting of it, Don, you want to give us a rundown? Uh, 
it's basically way in the future. Humans launch a colony ship out in space. Something goes wrong. The technology, everybody, the humans are reduced to like cavemen and there's mutant monsters that eat them. All on a big spaceship. Yeah. Yep. It's all in a spaceship. Yeah. And I believe this was the, this thing, inver- like it sort of ge- um, eventually uh, metamorphosized into Gamma World, did it not? <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> yeah, it did. Yep. That's true. Yeah, second yeah. second edition Gam World did tie it in, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but basically when they did first edition Gam World, it was the exact same thing, but on the ruins of Earth instead of a spaceship. Hmm. Right. So in the original game, like people were wandering around as like mutants and and kind of what medieval level uh, humans, oh. and not understanding that they were on a spaceship. Essentially, is that the idea? Yeah, but the original Metamorphosis Alpha. No, you're like cavemen. Oh really? Yeah, like you're way primitive, and and any kind, oh, any kind of habitation is generally like just a tribe. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. it's it's super super primitive. Well, the early version of hmm. Gamma World were like that too, weren't they? That you generally were tribal. Yeah, but they added uh, for Gamma World, they added tech level, where okay. you'd have groups that were basically cavemen. You had groups that were kind of at like your primitive agricultural community level, and then you had what would be pretty close to a medieval level society. Right. And then for third edition, they added more that would become that you had actually like modern equivalent and little enclaves that technology still work because they somehow survived the war. Right. I'm just thinking to myself that did every game of Metamorphosis Alpha end when one caveman discovers like a picture window on the ship and hits it with his club hard enough to break it? <laughs> I never thought of that, but that would be that would be a pretty good. Uh... Yeah, that would be a good ending. Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, so yeah, basically, people tried to make role playing games right from the beginning of almost everything. So Gamma World was the post apocalyptic game. Metamorphosis Alpha. And Traveler were the science fiction role-playing games. Um, there were superhero role-playing games like Superhero 2099 or 2049. Maybe I think maybe it's 2049. 49 or 44? Uh, superhero 2044. I think you're right. I think it's Superhero yeah. 2044, which, um, was a, which is a set of rules. And the rules for powers were, because I, I have a copy somewhere. The rules for powers are basically, yeah, mix them up. You would work with the GM and come up with rules for powers yourself. It was pretty threadbare. A, a better superhero role-playing game, however, was one that is near and dear to my heart, which was Villains and Vigilantes, <laughs> which was the game I mentioned Me earlier that touched my heart. <laughs> yeah, as did I, but it, it touched my heart as well. But it's funny, uh, <laughs> Rob and I used to have this weird little stupid nerd debate back in the day because I was kind of brought up on, on Villains Vigilantes, and Rob was uh, heavily into Champions, which was another Which was another game that came game. shortly after, right. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was uh, a lot... It was a, it was a better put-together game, mm-hmm. by comparison. Like, Villains Vigilantes has a really wonderful charm to it, and a lot of that comes from the actual material of the game, like the, their villain source <laughs> books. Yeah. They're really, really great. Really imaginative. Amazing, yeah. Uh, it's just the actual system was a little bit odd. Um, yep. It was a little bit clunky. And uh, whereas Champion's system was great, whereas, and, and, but oddly enough, by comparison, its actual material wasn't. 
Mm. I found anyway. Yeah. yeah. Like I found like their villain source books were kind of lame. Where yeah, that's yeah, true. the you know the the, the villain <laughs> vigilante ones were fantastic. You know. Well, you know why? Though? Just very imaginative. Sorry. Yeah, but you know why that works out that way? Why? Um, when you get to a role playing game, because you kind of accidentally have hit upon one of the uh, the I guess you'd say sublimated thoughts when you create a game is role playing games you can either simulate the actuality of what goes on in the game or simulate more of the feel of what goes on in the game. Mm. And what you got with those two was villains and vigilantes, the rules work really good and it played just like a 1970s like Marvel comic. Yep, Six, late 60s, 70s comic. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Bronze and age. you ha- and you, you could have, like, gonzo things. And it was another one where you'd get powers like bionics. Well, make something up. Oh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. But Champions was meant... It was it was closer to... Um, I don't necessarily want to say realistic. Mm-hmm. But Champions was meant to simulate more of the physics of what would happen in a superhero world. Right. So it was more concise. The rules were more detailed. But because of that, you lose some of that freewheelingness. And I think that was what happens with their characters is they design them more to fit the game's mechanic ecology rather than the ultra gonzo wackiness of a 1970 superhero comic. And Yeah, but I mean, one thing I liked about Champions, though, having played both of them, and I actually ended up sort of going into the champions camp. He came over to the dark side. Uh, <laughs> I, I won. came over to the dark side. Yeah. Uh, Rob won. He, he, uh, he totally infiltrated my head. Uh, it was just because in, in uh, from a character generation standpoint, you could, a, a group of players could all play a bunch of characters and they were all roughly at about the same level mm-hmm. in terms of their abilities and their powers and their, you know, what have you. Because Villains Vigilantes was relatively um, uh, loosey-goosey, you could end up with this unfortunate very wide gap yeah. between having like a completely useless character and a god standing next to me right next to him yeah. you know and it was it, that's fine if you're the god character it's not so fun when you're the guy with you know crappy bionics and the ability <laughs> to change stoplights you know what well, what's interesting though is um a few years later they did a an actual marvel superheroes game and yep. the Mar- remember that oh, the, the the Marvel game worked really well. It's 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 another really good superhero game, but character creation has that problem you're talking about, but worse. Mm. Oh yeah, totally. Because you because it's it's totally random what your character starts out as, and you can literally have a god, and he's an average guy. Yeah, you could have Aunt May and the Hulk on the same superhero team in that game. <laughs> well, in fact, more often than not, you did, or or at the very least, you'd have these. Um, because I remember, I remember this specifically, you'd have these hodgepodge of, of superpowers that didn't really work well with each other. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So you'd have like, I can stretch and also read minds. Oh, okay. So I guess I can stretch my head up to a window and (laughs) (laughs) read someone's mind. I don't know. Like it was just, you'd get a lot of randomness, which on occasion you could get something very imaginative, but a lot of the times you just ended up with reject characters that didn't. They weren't kind of complimenting themselves very well, right. I guess. I yeah. don't know See, how to sort of put it. Well, you're, you're right, but that didn't bug me because when you think about, like, um, actual superheroes tend to work like that. Like, you think about, he has the speed and strength proportionate with a spider. He shoots webs, and he has ESP, because all spiders have ESP. That's why you can never stomp on them. Uh-huh. Like you, you can sort of fudge it. The only the 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 problem we had with Marvel and the best example ever was we had a group where all of our characters were pretty mu- pretty massive, mm-hmm. 
uh, without getting too much into how the mechanics worked. Like, I had a guy who could take as much damage as the Hulk. Right. One guy was an inventor. He was as smart as Reed Richards. Uh, another That's pretty dude, massive. Yeah, he, another dude could shoot like lightning bolts and, and had powered armor that was comparable to Iron Man's. And and then my buddy Tim rolled up a character that, that he named Target Boy the Human Hostage because <laughs> his highest stat was average. Oh, there you <laughs> like go. He was, and for some reason... He was the one that always ended up right in the middle of, like, the big fights with the villains that are designed to deal with our guys. Mm-hmm. And his his powers were he had, like, like feeble regeneration, which meant he healed as fast as a regular person. <laughs> and, and he had a elemental collection, which meant that he could, like, summon up all of, you know, a certain element in the area, like, before him. And he had it at typical... Which meant he could, like, say, summon up a five-pound five brick of all of the, like, lead in the area. And I say that because the one game the uh, bad guy sent in, like, a gang to take our characters out of a group of mercenaries. And, of course, they found Target Boy first, and that was his thing before they all opened up on him was, I'm going to try to summon lead! And everybody's like, no, no, you're, you're, you're going to, don't worry. So... <laughs> And did uh, did every combat round end with to the hospital? <laughs> yes, actually, yes, it did. <laughs> well, that was and that and therein, therein lies the problem with that that randomness. Yeah, it's like having a character like the Hulk, except you didn't get his invulnerability. So it's like, yeah, I'm really strong until someone hits me and then I go down like a sack <laughs> of potatoes, you know. And, to... and that's I think that was the frustration of that game. Like, right. In fact, the game almost encouraged you just to play pre-existing characters. Like, you were just, oh, I'm going to make up the Avengers, and Mm -hmm. the Hulk's on it, but also, like, Wolverine's in there, and, uh, you know, some character from the Defenders is there. Like, the game sort of, a lot of the times, I've noticed anyway, it seemed to kind of push in that, subtly in that direction of, like, you could make a character, or you could just take one of these and uh, do what you will. Yeah, Mm because that that was something that came around during, like, the... uh the second wave of the role-playing game history. Mm-hmm. When you started having more games based on pre-existing, like, like settings. And that's exactly what happens. Like, when you get your Marvel, your DC superheroes, they really did kind of... Marvel, not so much, but DC really did kind of downplay the idea of making your own characters. Mm-hmm. That it was more set up to, to play the actual characters from the comic. Well, they assumed you want to do that, right? Yeah, and so they yeah they they give you the stats for all the major characters from the comic and oh by the way in case you want to here's like actual rules for making your own but who wants mm-hmm. to do that? Yeah, basically. Um, although and Rob Rob you own the 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 DC Heroes game. Yeah, yeah, right? I have a copy of the second edition of the DC Heroes. I got copies of second, third, and what would technically be fourth. And I seem to recall you telling me once before that like it was actually a very a very balanced, very well thought out game, mm. but the only downside was that character generation took for flipping ever. Yes. Or am I thinking of something else? Well, there's a couple games like that. <laughs> That's actually yeah. a very common complaint. In fact, actually, that goes back to one of the major complaints about Champions that you brought that up. Champions, mm-hmm. um, we actually should go back a tiny bit. Champions, which I mentioned earlier in V and V, are both actual good examples of something that was going on back in the late '70s, um, which was. 
villains and vigilantes followed the Dungeons and Dragons line, which basically meant you generally rolled up your characters. Although V&V had an interesting one where you could actually just make yourself as a superhero and then add powers. Mm-hmm. In fact, actually, you were, the original V&V intended you to do that, villains and vigilantes. Champions, on the other hand, was one of the very first games, I don't think it was the first, but one of the first, to use a point system. Where characters got a certain number of points, and they could allocate them in different ways to buy powers or raise stats or things like that as a way to control your characters so they all ended up being roughly the same level or roughly equal to each other. And from there, two different concepts of role-playing, I guess you get character design, would evolve. You would end up with the line that Champions follows and would be followed by GURPS later on and several others. Um, which is point-based. The Chaosium system, I believe, RuneQuest, Call of Cthulhu, I believe they also followed the point-based thing, or something similar to it anyway. They did, uh, Mm. you rolled your stats, and then you uh, spent however many points you got from that on your skills. Okay, okay, yeah, they separated it that way, right? Yeah, they kind of split the diff. Although they did have their own, they did have Super World, which was their superhero role-playing game, which was, Basically, their version of champions, and they also use points for powers as well, and such mm. and such in there. But anyway, so that role playing games would kind of split off into this one line that focuses on almost you could say balance and tends to be points oriented, and one line that tended to be more about random and seeing what you could come up with. Yeah, and that's kind of where role playing games went, at least as they went from the their what we call the golden age into their silver age of the nineteen eighties. And as yeah. you said, like the ones that used the point-based system were, were slow to make your characters up. Yeah, they were very slow because you had to think it through, right? It became an exercise in um, uh, doing your taxes or doing your homework, <laughs> as has already been said, mm. in well, a some, lot of ways. Some were, some weren't. I mean, one of the problems that made uh, making a character in Champions take so long mm-hmm. is there's so much math. Right, yeah. Like there's so many substats that you have to calculate after you've allotted your points to your main stats, and then you can add points to change those and blah, blah, blah. Right. Mm. So Villains Vigilantes didn't really have that problem until you had to figure out how much your character could lift. Yes. VNV yeah. did have a few calculated stats that were incredibly complex. Well, they, but... they weren't that bad. It was just multiply by, you know, a decimal. But no, that strength formula, which is like an eight-point equation, you're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, yeah, that's that's true. But I will tell you, champions did amazing things in high school for my math skills. <laughs> like, even to this day, I'm incredible with fractions. As long as we're talking about uh, fractions that are in point two five. In increments of point two five, I am a math master, and it's because I made so many darn champions characters, and you had to know but it that. Was in, it was interesting that you could. It just allowed you a lot of very precision based mm-hmm. character generation. Yeah. Like you could do something like a guy who was practically immune to fire, but you could still punch him and knock him out. Yeah, right. Like that was. Yeah, I, I really like that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know that ability to to go in and pinpoint like that. Whereas, yeah, something where you're just randomly rolling dice and going, okay, now you can, uh, you know, you can make things invisible. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know what I mean? Like you can actually create a character where like his powers complement each other. And, you know, there's a certain amount of, like the thing makes a certain amount of sense, I guess. Right. Yeah, I, don't, I kind um, of, I will say, just sorry to interrupt, but oh. villains of vigilantes, at least by second edition, I don't know if first edition did this did actually have the thing where you were supposed to roll up um, 
was it like you rolled D- like 1d6 plus two powers, wasn't it? Yep. 1d6 and a weakness. And a weakness, yeah. But yep. then you got rid of those extra two, or at least one of the extra two. It was assumed that you were going to end up with a couple of weird ones that didn't fit together with yeah. the others. So there was some attempt to let things, you know, balance out. Um, I think they also might have had, I don't remember, did they Did they have a thing done where there were a few powers that you could actually sacrifice another power to get a better version of it or get a modified version of it? Or am I thinking of Marvel that did that? Yeah, okay, you're kind of thinking sideways about both. Okay. Villains and Vigilantes was, it was like D6 plus 1 or D6 plus 2. When you mm-hmm. rolled for what your actual powers were, you had to drop 1. And then right. if you wanted to drop your weakness, you had to drop another power. Right. Whereas uh, what Marvel did is you, if you had the um, the Ultimate Powers book, you rolled your powers. Mm-hmm. And then you would get a bonus power, which there, w- there was the bonus power and there was an opposing power. The opposing power is just for the Game Master. Mm-hmm. It was an indication of this power will directly oppose that one. Right. But if you've got bonus powers or optional powers, instead of rolling for one of the one, because you rolled for how many powers you rolled for in Marvel, mm-hmm. you could automatically use one of the slots for an optional power. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Because I, I got to say, I kind of prefer the totally ra- like random stuff. Because I found, especially for superhero games, you'd always get people like, "Okay, I'm gonna like make my character," and he's like, "Get like regeneration and berserker rage and like claws that'll cut through anything." And it's like, and right. he's Canadian, yeah. And they're like, "Again, <laughs> really? You're making this again, right. really?" Yeah, everyone makes Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, or Wolverine. That's true. Yeah, and that's <laughs> and that's why it's it's random. Okay, now. Use your imagination and figure out how this works. So I can fly, I have, like, fire breath, and I can change the color of things. Yeah, there you go. Okay, now you figure out how to get used to And And it was just nice because it broke people out of their rut. Yeah. Like, now go fight crime. No. (laughs) (laughs) If Target Boy can do it, you can do it. Right. I think I think that see I agree with you Don to a point which was the the random stuff was fine until you got like the dud character and mm. it wasn't so I found it wasn't as fun anymore yeah. because mm. you're you're kind of a, a liability at that point or you know that's very true. Um, the other issue with the points based system and champions really had this came down to equipment mm-hmm. because a lot of uh, games were used points especially superhero games were used points you're using points to buy your you know super equipment. Yeah. Well, what about the character that just picks up a gun? <laughs> like that actually during the game, that actually that was an actual issue that came came up in Champions games that I ran. Well, a characters characters are picking up equipment mm-hmm. that are suddenly equal to the other character had to pay points for. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how does that work? And um, you, the answer usually was you were allowed to carry the gun, but by the end of the game you had to give it up because that, and you'd have to find a new one the next game or something because that's not part of your quote unquote default character. Yeah, that was the well, general think, way I, they handled it. I think also they were, I think they were sort of intending you to not have just a gun, but a gun that could like you know change the molecular consistency of things. Like it wasn't just a pistol. Yeah, right. You know what yeah. I mean? I think the intent was it's a sword, but it can cut through diamond and shoot fireballs, not just something you ran into a museum and picked up. Exactly. You know? But if you were, say, playing a Punisher ripoff, mm-hmm. you would yeah, end, you, you, all your equipment was like normal standard M16s and rocket launchers and all this other stuff. 
that yeah. you and then but another character could pick that up off a you know a, you know a villain's uh, uh, minions during the story and be doing the exact same thing. Now, mind right, you, right. The, the Punisher character again does get to start out each, each adventure with all that equipment, whereas the other guy doesn't. But that's really the only main advantage, and they can and he can still have it taken away because it's equipment. Yeah, uh, I see. So that was a problem that point-based systems could very easily be overwhelmed. Yeah. At least point-based superhero systems could easily be overwhelmed by equipment and how to deal with equipment. Mm. Yeah, um, that that to me was their other great flaw, and I say this as someone who ran many many point based role playing games and such, and that's one one consistent problem that I came across. There are a few exceptions. I mean, there were you could just ignore it. Mm-hmm. That was always an option. Uh, that's kind of what the if I remember it, the DC Heroes one, the Mayfair DC Heroes one did that, where basically you just ignore the if characters pick up equipment during the game, that's fine. You have the stats for it, that's fine, no problem. I um, seem to recall, Rob, that you'd also have fun with it. Like, uh, do you remember the, the the period in time where we were doing the uh, the Adventures of the Beneficial Few, which yep. was a really goofy superhero stuff? And one of our one of our, uh, our players rolled up a character who was like a parody of the Punisher, mm-hmm. who all of his abilities were based around guns that he always just had on him. So even if you took them away, he just had another pair behind his back. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so he would he could fly, for example, because he would just point a pair of Uzis at the ground and fire them and he would right. lift them into the air. And... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you could do all these weird things. And that something normal equipment couldn't do, but he could do it because he paid points for them. Exactly. <laughs> he could get away with that. And yeah, for, for every shotgun you took away, you just had another one on him somewhere, you know. Mm-hmm. So you never, you could never truly get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, they, he'd just pull them out. Where did you get that gun from? None of your damn business. Let's go. <laughs> I don't want to say. <laughs> uh, so, so point-based systems definitely had their issues, mm-hmm. but uh, but overall, they could produce some really good stuff, and I think that they were almost a necessity for superhero gaming. Um, Don Don obviously disagrees slightly. <laughs> I mean, and there is some fun to rolling up your characters randomly. I, except for the fact that most games are, if you'll pardon my language, filled with cheating bastards. There's always a couple of cheating bastards in every role-playing game who manage to roll sixes across the board. It's amazing how they do it. Yes, yeah. it's also interesting. There's a correlation between those players and where they're often sitting, uh, often in a corner somewhere when they're rolling up their, their characters. Where yeah. No one can see what they're doing. Exactly. They turn their back. They kind of wander off into the corner. And when they come back, all their stats out of 18 are like 17, 18, 17, 18, 16. There's a 30 in there somewhere. We we, right. we had a guy do that once that uh, he, he, he did this uh, twice, once for our group, once for another group he was playing. Because the game master of the other group said, did you see him roll up this character? I'm like, why? And she's like, well, because he said he rolled it in front of you guys. And we went through, and he maxed every single roll except intelligence, where he rolled, like, one less than the maximum you could have rolled. Right. And then there was another game we were playing, um, we were playing uh, Palladium. Mm-hmm. And he made a ninja from Ninjas and Super Spies, because that's how you win. Yes. And again, every stat was maxed out, but what we did that is we combined all the games so everything they ran into had MDC. Better explain what that is. Yeah, which for those of you who don't know, um, in the Palladium system, Mega Damage, MDC, Mega Damage Capacity, represents like your super hard alien metals like you see in all the sci-fi movies that our weapons just can't hurt. Mm-hmm. And when when we did the game, because he had rolled up 
like a character from the regular game, he did normal damage, and nothing he ran into during that game, he could just walk up and kung fu it to death. <sighs> Poor guy. Well, it was it was pretty good because even though he he, I can't prove it, but we highly suspect that he cheated on the character and picked right. the most massive thing there was. Mm-hmm. When he ran into the MDC stuff, because he had the ninja character, he had enough like weird powers and abilities. And he was pretty good at coming up with new uses for them that he actually, mm-hmm. it, it, it made it more of a fair fight. Right. Because he could do weird things to say the guy's in the armor and use right. ninja tricks and come up with all these complicated plans. So it worked out pretty good. Mm-hmm. And to his credit, he didn't complain when I basically had made all of his major abilities useless. Right. That's, that's pretty good. That's rare for a player to do. Well, especially the kind of guy that fudges the rolls, as we say. Mm-hmm. Usually they lose their shit when something comes up that negates that. <laughs> right. One of the best ways to handle that for like D&D style games that I saw, ever saw was um, there was an option. I don't know. It's just I, I, not official one, I don't think. But it's for D&D style games where basically what the characters have, say, six stats and they, you just give them a set of numbers. You just give them like, uh, what is it? A 16, a 15, a 14... Two tens and an eight, or something like that, yeah. for the six numbers, and they just allocate them wherever they want. So, oh, okay, that's a good idea. And then that prevent it prevents rolling, and it makes sure that every character has at least the potential to be really good at something, and they're good at one area where they're going to kind of suck. Yeah. And I think that was one of the best ways I saw to do it. Now, of course, I imagine most gamers hated that idea because it meant that they couldn't, you know, have the chance to roll up, you know, Superman, but. The thing is, I think that that actually is a, a pretty good way to do it. At least looking back on it from the ways I saw. I don't remember ever actually doing it in a game myself, but I did see it done once. I'm trying to remember what game did... There was a game that did that, not D&D, but there was Although, an actual game. There's actually hmm? a lot of games that, if you roll up stats, they'll give you that option. Right, okay. That they suggest that. Um, right. And I think that is a good system. Yeah, it, it can't... The only problem I find for, for say, like... Um, a power mm-hmm. gamer, a guy who likes to maximize all of his stats and build the super kicking ass character. Mm-hmm. It's only a problem if the rest of the group doesn't do that too. Right. Because especially for a combat oriented game, you want all the players roughly equal wherever that level is, because then it's not like the bad guys show up and you have to have like almighty Zeus and his toddler henchmen for the rest of the group because one guy's super massive. Which happened a lot. Yeah, and and, and that's where I say it, it's it's all about the because we oh my god another another funny story we played Go ahead. we played one game where the group the intent was they were going to be this like team of like super commando special forces character types right and they rolled terrible mm-hmm. like we we said okay you're you're still like military guys but wow your stats are terrible your characters are weenies I'm gonna hit you. Uh. And one guy in the group got this weird idea when we're, like, picking equipment. He's like, can my character have a girlfriend? And we're like, yeah, okay, sure. And everybody's like, yeah, can my character have a girlfriend, too? And we rolled up their girlfriends, and the girlfriends had, like, max stats and massive abilities. And everybody's like, can, can we play them instead? And I said, no, no, you're playing the weenies. That's just kind of how it went. And it, it, was, it was a good campaign. Like, they sucked, but they all sucked. So you could, like, you, you could play, you know, like, Polly Shore in the army as a, as a campaign. 
Right. You know, it wasn't like one guy rolled up Nick Fury and everybody's like, oh, which end do I point? So... Actually, I found some of the best games that I ran tended to actually be ones where the players were really, I don't want to say losers, but they were not very high-level characters. Mm-hmm. And they were basically, so they they knew that they couldn't attack the world and just <laughs> had to kind of um, work their way, just kind of work their way through it. Right. Um, one of my very favorites was I ran, uh, I, you guys know, both know about this, there was a game of uh, the game Rifts which is basically a post-apocalyptic kitchen soup role-playing game, for those who aren't familiar with it, by uh, Palladium Games, where giant magical rifts opened up, and so the world is this giant post-apocalyptic place with magic and dragons and cyborgs and mecha and basically everything, like I said, the kitchen sink thrown into this one setting. And it's a completely horrific, chaotic setting where anything literally can and does happen, usually to your characters. (laughs) And in Rifts, usually you build these like massive godlike characters that go out into this chaos and usually like create order. But the game that I ran was a um, what I refer to as the Rifts Farmers Campaign, which was basically it was basically the Magnificent Seven, except for the characters weren't the Magnificent Seven; they were the farmers set out to find the Magnificent Seven, <laughs> and so they had to go out into the world. And they were literally a group of just country hicks from a village that was under that was being raided by these like cyborg mice, and that um, had mega damage, so they couldn't hurt them. And they had one actual weapon between them. The one guy had a had a blaster rifle, did like a D six, which is in the game is basically a joke. And they went out into this horrific, chaotic fantasy world to try to find actual people that could come back to their village and would like save them from these like marauders. And um, that was one of my favorite games that I've ever run in my entire life, partly because the players, they couldn't fight their way through anything. And they had to, so they constantly had to figure out ways to solve the problems and to deal with this incredibly dangerous setting, but do it in a way that um, they could, yeah, that they had to think through and solve their problems. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was actually, and I thought that brought out the best in the characters and the best up and the best in the players. Really, I've done other similar games as well, and that usually tends to bring out the best in them when they can't just punch stuff to get to solve their problems or shoot stuff. Right. Well, don't uh, um, most horror games operate off of that that sort of thing? That's true. Yeah, they do, but the horror games have a slightly twisted version of that, where if you're if you're in a horror game, yeah, you have to assume that everything. Um, can and will eat you that you encounter yeah when i run i tend to little run more little adventure style even though the risk setting can be or taken as horror mm-hmm. um but you're right the horror games yeah like call of cthulhu being the perfect example of that yeah mm-hmm. um which call of cthulhu is famous for its first edition not <laughs> yeah. having any healing rules yeah to be fair you were never going to use them anyway yeah. <laughs> exactly well that's the thing right they did a whole edition of a game <laughs> play tested it released it for years and nobody thought that it was strange that there were no <laughs> rules for characters healing or recovering yeah because it's not it's you're done <laughs> yeah if, you're, if, if the if the monster you're investigating catches you you're dead anyway there's no getting away from it so it's just instant kill so yeah although we you're just we had Cthulhu characters that lasted surprisingly long. Mm-hmm. There was one, uh, uh, Dokran, called him Ernie Sick because he rolled like pathetically low for constitution. Mm-hmm. And Ernie Sick wouldn't die. <laughs> like, holy, no, just 
Because I, when I run a horror game, I run straight up. So if the dice say mm-hmm. you're done, you're done. Because it's a, horror is supposed to be this arbitrary, terrible universe that's just waiting to step on you. So sure. And Ernie wouldn't die. He got poisoned by Black Widow spiders at one point. Mm-hmm. And his constitution dropped to one, which is the minimum to keep somebody alive, which is like the dude in the iron lung that has to be wheeled around by the rest of the group. But he wouldn't die. <laughs> it's like to the point where like even the monsters started feeling sorry for him so they wouldn't kill him like you know they're running after him he's like oh my sciatica and they, and they kind of roll their eyes and go oh, fine just keep going yeah yeah all right just go yeah, it sure felt like that but yeah <laughs> there well that happens sometimes right there are some characters that even though that they technically shouldn't they just the, the dice are just with them they just have the luck of the gods and it literally is just literal random chance or whatever and they just keep succeeding when they shouldn't be succeeding i'm thinking of target boy again <laughs> you're right yeah exactly and they keep surviving things again and again and it's just like how are you what's going on here has god decided he likes you what's going on here but this is call of cthulhu god hates you it's in the rule book exactly Okay, so we, we, we discussed up to, uh, what, second wave games? Are we at third yeah, wave now? Or where are well, we? Well, we're, we're basically, okay, well, second wave, I believe you could say, starts with, um, what? It starts with AD&D. Well, do you want, I guess we, I, do you want the, the quickity rundown? Sure. That might be Let's the best it. way. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, I've got it. Now, this is just my own personal way that I look at it. So if anybody disagrees, feel free to send us angry emails. Um, I got it that there's basically four eras and each era has two phases okay and they correspond more or less to the decade so the 1970s begins with dungeons and dragons and it's the first official role-playing game proper it kicks everything off by the second half you have if you know anything about comic books what i call small press role-playing games all right that the role-playing games that came out were typically um, pamphlet-sized. They were fairly cheaply printed. You're talking maybe 36 pages. Um, kind of doggedy artwork, because a lot of times it'd just be a friend of the author or the author themselves just doing their best. Uh, would this be the kind of stuff you'd see advertised in Dragon Magazine, which was a magazine about D&D at the time when D&D was around, popular, I guess. You know what I mean? I mean, it's popularity in the 80s kind of thing. Yeah. But is that the kind of games you're talking about? Like, uh... yeah, that was that was a lot of it. Um, a lot of the games that came out at that time, like I say, the production values weren't real high, and a lot of them were, um, like the original D and D, the rules and the setting were pretty threadbare because it was assumed like if you played Dungeons and Dragons, you were already a sword and sorcery fan. That's what brought people to the game. You knew the tropes. You knew how things worked so they didn't give you a lot of that in the book the book was just here's some basic rules you figure it out yourself you'd add your own you'd come up with your own setting blah 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 okay um the second era starts um i'd say sometime around 1981 and it's just after the satanic panic starts because that's when you suddenly have this big influx of fans like people trying out role-playing games um, there's a big expansion in topics. Uh, that's where you start getting like more horror. You get your science fiction stuff. And you get higher production values. 
Um, there's more emphasis on art. Uh, Palladium started the idea of the square bound paperback book, which you start seeing other companies do because it's it's relatively inexpensive, but it still looks pretty good. Um, during that era, you get a lot of um, games from the earlier earlier times coming back in new editions, like Villains and Vigilantes. The one everybody remembers is second edition. It's not first edition, which had a small print run, and again was one of these like kind of kind of cheaply put together books. Hmm. And then the second part of the second era is when you start getting um, games that are part of uh, some other license. Like you got, they did Marvel, they did DC, uh, Palladium did the Turtles game. They also did Robotech, which was their big breakout hit. Um, prior to that, most games that came out were the author's own idea or a ripoff of something else. Uh, you had Call of Cthulhu. That was kind of the first uh, mass market game. But it was still it was still kind of small. And then as a, as, as a result of, say, getting an, like the Marvel game, it comes with a setting. So the game included more detail about setting, more detail about characters. Um, and that spilled into the other games... So people who were actually writing their own stuff were now starting to flesh out the setting and flesh out the ideas of behind who the characters are, which prior to that in like the first wave was up to the players. It was assumed you'd come up with that on your own. Then the third wave is kind of, it's in the 90s. And by 89, 90, 91 you had companies that were putting out games that had more of an emphasis on the story part. Uh, the White Wolf, when they did their World of Darkness, that was kind of the start of that, where you had, it was more about the characters as dramatic persona rather than ambulatory stats. You had more stripped-down rules because a lot of the, the, the game would be more uh, negotiated, I guess you'd say, between the game master and the participants. Um, one of the side effects and downsides of that was you had people who were frustrated writers that would write role-playing games. And you'd... I think that's always been part of it, actually. It has, but it got more pronounced because you'd buy a role-playing game that, like, a third of it would be short stories, which is, is fine and dandy. And then, because of that, the setting would be so well fleshed out as Game Master, you're not actively adding that much to it. Hmm. And then, What's an example of that? Like, give me a game example of that because uh, this might have been past the point where I was playing them anymore. Okay, well, a lot of the uh, White Wolf stuff eventually got to that because they do like Vampire, mm -hmm. and Vampire is pretty good, and they do some settings, and they do the different clans of Vampire, and those were pretty good, and they had because you had a decent, well thought out story behind it. But there was still a lot of play that the, the, the participants in the game could add their own things to. But then they'd start putting up books that would get more increasingly specific. So it wouldn't just be this clan of vampires or like business guys. But like this clan of vampires is led by Bob and Bob lives here. And this is what Bob has for breakfast. And then you're not really adding to that. It's because the person writing it is telling their own story and a role-playing game is about facilitating the story of, of the, the, the participants. Oh, okay. So the downside of course, is that 
you um, will eventually run out of stuff to sell people. I mean, you'll detail everything that can be detailed and eventually like, well, what do we do now? Yep. You can, you can actually over detail a setting in fact. Yep. And then that kind of leads, okay. The second part of the third wave in the nineties was the D 20 system, which was the upgrade to dungeons and dragons, which brought back more of the rules focus to things. Mm -hmm. Whereas prior to that, it was more the the story focus. The mechanics right. were secondary. And then when you get to the fourth era, which is the 2000s, that's where you sort of start running into some of the things that you're talking about. Because when you get to, say, the 2000s, games tended to be, if not more detailed mechanically, the rules tended to be more focused because you had this war game influence that came from the D20 system and mm -hmm. the collectible card games, war games, all of that had a, a, a surge during the 90s. And then getting to the problem that you, you've mentioned, one of the things that started happening in the 2000s was a lot of companies would bring out new editions of old games. And it really became a thing that each edition of your game would push the setting along. Okay. Right. Um, the best example of that would be like, say, Shadowrun. Shadowrun comes out in the 80s. The game is set in 2050. They do the second edition, which is basically first edition. The rules are a little different. Uh, they flesh out the setting a little more. It takes place in 2054. Mm -hmm. Third edition takes place in like somewhere around 2060. And the setting has changed. They just had this big presidential election. The, the dragon that got elected was assassinated. The corporate wars start. Everything, the setting is now different along with the mechanics. Then they do right. like fourth edition, which I think is like 2072. Mm -hmm. And the mechanics are a little different. It's further along in the timeline of, of the setting. So it's almost like you're doing a new game each time, but still tying back to the older stuff. Hmm. Oh, okay. Um, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so, and then it, it's things seem to wax and wane because something that's happened since the two thousands um, that uh, you didn't touch on is there is actually another stage of game that's happened, mm -hmm. where what's happened is, is that well. Oh, there's been a split. I guess the split technically occurred in the 90s with LARPing, like right. the live-action role-playing and such. But there started to become a focus more on um, narrativist games, okay. which uh, we'll talk about in, more in another podcast. But um, narrativist games are basically games that are just completely story-driven, mm -hmm. um, where the players – they started coming out with games where progressively the players had more and more power. And to the point where there are games actually that exist now where there are no GMs, there are no game masters. Yeah, the players take either a role; they either game by consensus. In other words, what happens is based on what everyone decides. Or in some cases, they have a rotating GM. Whichever player is not active at the moment is the, is acting as a kind of uh, referee or GM for that scene. But again, the story is the one that's created by consensus rather than an actual GM like directing and refereeing. Yeah. And those types of games have been popular since since the mid two thousands or so. Now they are kind of again another kind of parallel development 
that's been happening with role-playing games and in, in, are in some ways a reaction to the more rules-heavy stuff. So games of kind of role, tabletop role-playing has kind of divided a game into the rules-heavy rules heavy and the narrativist. Yeah. Where, where the, if I'm using the term right, narrativist might not be the correct term, but I'm going to go with it anyway. My friend Graham can correct me later. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of the current evolution or state of gaming as it is, which could almost... I'm not sure where that would count as the fourth age. Like you could say that there's a fourth age that's, or sorry, fifth age that's a narrativist, or whether you could actually just say it's running in parallel with the fourth age um, tabletop stuff. Yeah, it's it's because that kind of stuff really does come from the uh, the live action gaming, which comes from the more story oriented oriented stuff that you saw back in the '90s. Right. Yeah. And yeah. It's always there. Nothing totally goes away. Um, even mm-hmm. when the D20 thing hit and everything was all about, you know, more detailed wargamey rules, that right. stuff still went on. And the kind of games you're talking about, they're a thing, they're still kind of a subset. Mm-hmm. Because gaming, like role-playing games, like most forms of entertainment, I think are still waiting for the next big thing. So w- right. when you say they're fragmented, you're right. Like, there's no consolidation of, of, of those kind... Because I know the kind of games you're talking about. Right. There's no consolidation of those yet where they've moved to the front. And I think it's because it's really difficult to put together a good group that are all like-minded enough to play that kind of thing without punching each other in the throat. I think so. Um, also, there's another like inherent problem to them. I don't think they work very well for... And this is my opinion. We can be corrected later on. Uh, by um, I don't think they work well for campaigns. Um, I've noticed a lot of narrativist games tend to be what I would call narrow games, uh-huh. which are basically games that are designed for players to play through a particular scenario. Right. You could almost call them an evolution of the whole murder mystery dinner thing. Well, and that's what that's kind of what the live action stuff was. Yeah, and so there's there are certain set goals and certain situations that are happening, and you just kind of go through that. Yeah. And um, that's kind of what the narrativist games are like. Um, there's one, for example, uh, the famous one I know of was one called The Mountain Witch, mm-hmm. where the players were a group of samurai that are going up a mountain to try to hunt down some like witch that's been like terrorizing a valley or something. It's you know it's the heroic knights going up, but there are a whole bunch of complications and such. But the whole game is literally written just to play out that one scenario. Yeah, but they don't... It's not a generic game. Yeah, they don't have to, though, because Cosmic Patrol is the same kind of game, and they do all kinds... They've had all kinds of different supplements and that come out. Right. So that's more of a nature of the specific game, I think, than the the medium of those Hmm. kind of games. I could see that. Hmm. Because I've... I've, uh, I know what you're talking about, Rob, actually. There was a game called Mutant Future I I downloaded off... Someone had actually put up a... A copy of this thing just to, you know as a tryout version and right. it is it is literally if i'm get if i'm remembering the name right i think it is mutant year zero it's kind of a game world post-apocalyptic game but there's an actual ending to it mm-hmm. like it's right. not this yeah. open this open sort of sandbox environment you're you're playing this very specific adventure and then that's it mm-hmm. yeah and you can yeah. and i guess you can play another you know round of it again you know down the road if you want uh, a new game but it still ultimately ends that same end point yeah, it's almost like you're going through a novel, right, or a movie or something. And what's or, happening well, is you're or you're a following, module, you're, or a module. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. In a way, yeah. actually, that's true. In a way, nothing's changed, right? Goes back to D and D modules. Yeah. Um, 
but but I will say in the defense, well, okay, even modules, gaming modules went through the revolution where the very early ones were very literally on rails because you were going through the dungeon and you could only go through a certain way. Yeah. Um, to to stuff that was more open and more of like an adventure where you could follow different routes. And then have gone back maybe to maybe I'm right maybe back to the whole uh, on rails thing or hybrid. I don't know. The sad truth, I'm going to make a confession. I pretty much got out of gaming in the like mid to late 2000s. We can't um, be friends. I, 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 I know, Don. I know. I, I'm, this is the end of the podcast, folks. I'm sorry. We, we, can't, we can't work together anymore. There, there won't be a um, holiday special episode. It's over. Yep. I was going to say, uh, look forward next week, folks, to the Rob and Chad podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, yeah, but, but it's, it's, it's true, though. I mean, I reached, I, you know, after, uh, what, gaming for about, wow, more than 20 years, more like 30 years almost, um, I basically kind of reached my saturation point and uh, maybe I'll get back into them someday, but I've taken a long hiatus from gaming. Let's put it that right. way. Um, and so that's why I, I'm not for that familiar with the current state of gaming. My gaming knowledge more or less mostly ends about the mid 2000s. And then through friends, I know a little bit about what's happened after with the, like the narrativist games and such. Right. Well, I'm, I'm not that different from you, Rob. I actually stopped when I got to college because I just didn't, there was no one I knew that played them anymore. Right. And I, I mm. kind of keep it a, a sort of, um, a peripheral view of them. Like, you know, if I go into a, into a store or something, I see somebody, I often pick one up and flip through it kind of thing. But, uh, right. Yeah. You know, there was a whole thing, I guess, uh, with a with a fantasy game called Pathfinder that I, mm-hmm. you know, had I had no experience with that, but that seems to be kind of a lot of people's go to. Yeah. Back in the day, it was D and D, and and the current generation seems to be Pathfinder. Well, pa- Pathfinder is D and D with a different yes. name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I've heard. No, literally, yeah, it the, is. It yeah. literally, it's D and D. What happened is, if I remember right, I can be corrected. D- they created D and D. Version three, also known as the D twenty system, and eventually D and D moved on to D and D after they did version what three point five, and then they moved then D and D moved on to D and D version four, which used a completely new set of rules, yeah. so they could re release all their books and everything. But people didn't want to give up D and D three point five or three whatever. They didn't want to give it up. So what happened is is that the TSR or actually thrown by Hasbro yeah. sub licensed the rules. For D and D, out to another company, Paizo Publishing, I believe it was, mm-hmm. or is, and they created their own version called Pathfinder, which is really D and D three point whatever. Yeah. Oh, okay. So really, that is D and D. It is. Hmm. It's just licensed by a separate company and uses a separate brand name, but it's D and D. Yeah. D and D three point Or it's more like three point six. Okay, we can work with that. So, <laughs> and, and and what what is D and D up to right now? Five. Five is coming out soon if it's not out already. Okay. Yeah, because four basically changed things. So four made things more like um, like a video game. Yeah, like a video game. They basically tried to turn D and D into a pen and paper, massively multiplayer role playing game. Yeah. Wait, hold on. I think five already came out then because I remember. Uh... Wasn't there like a big relaunch for the whole thing just like this past year? Yeah, that that'd be five. I saw them talking about it, but I stopped at three. Three is fantastic. I don't need fifteen more versions of D and D. Hmm. Yeah, that's part of the problem. They more or less perfected. One may argue this D and D with three. Yeah. 
D and D the is probably three is probably the most perfect version of D and D they've ever created, and they made a ton of stuff for it. And then they moved on to they did the Microsoft thing. They moved on to four and said, "Okay, guys, come on, let's go to four. And everyone said, "No, we're happy with three. Screw you." <laughs> yeah, basically. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's basically what happened. Hmm. So yeah, I guess I guess mine would have been what? Uh, what was the red box one? And I guess advanced D and D was two. One point so. five, I guess would would be the red eh. box. Well, that's where if you really want to get technical, A D and D is technically the third edition of D&D. Okay. Red, ah, okay. Red Box was two. Second edition was the fourth edition. Third edition was the fifth. 3.5 was the sixth. Four was seven. So D&D version five is actually the eighth version of the game. Cheapers. Yep. <laughs> by, the, by the way, fourth edition came out in 2008. Fifth edition came out in 2014. Fifth edition, fifth edition has actually been out for two years, guys. We just didn't notice. Oh, wow. Or at least oh, maybe a year and so a half. Is, Who knows? So are they gearing up for a sixth edition? I'm assuming they oh, are. Oh, probably. They must they, be. Because they, yeah. they keep trying to do the old Microsoft Windows Update thing. Yeah. Coping. See, all they need to... You know, look, at they, they got it all wrong. All they need to do is put the red box back out again with some different art on it. They did. <laughs> they did that. No, 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 no. I know. But I'm saying that you advertise that as sixth edition. <laughs> right. Well, well, no, they advertise as classic. Because they put out white box... The little pamphlets, the very original. They reissued that a couple years ago. Oh, so they're pulling the same stunt that Coca-Cola did back in the day with Coke Classic. Sort of, yep. but what keeps kind of biting them in the ass is everybody likes the old versions better than the new ones. <laughs> and there are people right now that are releasing supplements for the white box D&D. Mm-hmm. That's funny. You can do it that. Is. Yeah, I've picked up a few of them because they're actually really nifty. I believe hmm. it. Oh, okay. Well, how about this, guys? Why don't you um, why don't you go through like like Rob? What would be like say your your favoriteest uh, RPGs that you can think of that you know you have like a fondness for? Well, as is, was mentioned earlier, uh, of course, I uh, didn't take to fantasy gaming. Actually, I wasn't a big fantasy fan to begin with. My I have a fondness for fantasy, but I don't have the great love of it that many people do. So that's why D and D didn't strike you know strike a chord with me. But superheroes. I loved superheroes when I was a teen. You know, I was a huge comic book fan. And so when I discovered superhero gaming, I truly fell in love. And um, so for me, um, the majority of the role-playing games that I love are superhero games. Villains and Vigilantes, second edition. Um, su- uh, Champions, I, as, as we've discussed, I ran Champions for like almost 20 years. On and off, I ran Champions. Champions, also known now as the hero system. And mm. so that, to me, because I could do anything with it. I've always been fond of role-playing games that let me come up with my own story, and then the rules just served as a way to play out that story. Um, right. Not that I've been... Not that I was a GM... Because I, 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 I always preferred game mastering or GMing over playing, because... I always found I enjoyed more. I enjoyed playing God, I guess you could say. I, the power. <laughs> the power! Um, so as an end result, I also liked creating my own settings and creating story and that. So I was drawn mostly to games that let me do that, like Champions, for example. i also very fond of uh, DC Heroes Mayfair Edition role-playing game. Third edition mm-hmm. was probably my favorite for that one. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't think I... I think only once did I ever actually use DC Heroes 3rd Edition for playing a superhero game. Yeah. 
a proper one. I've used it to run a Star Trek campaign. I've used it to run a kind of a kind of fantasy superhero game that I did. It was a like magical girls thing that I did with a group of players um, back in the Sailor Moon days in the nineties. Um, I, I guess that's technically superhero. I did run a proper superhero game with it once. I think mm-hmm. I've done one or two other things with it, but I very oh. rarely used it because. The DC, again, it's a system that you can do almost anything with. It just depends on what you want to do with it. Mm-hmm. And those uh, GURPS, again, generic universal role-playing system. You're probably seeing a trend here. So, um, <laughs> so my, I've tended to like games that were not for a specific setting or specific genre, except for superhero, obviously. Um, there are two exceptions um, that I can think of offhand. I'm a huge fan uh, three, actually, three exceptions. Three the three games that I love fell in love with their specific are uh, Mechton, which was a giant robot mecha, you know, role playing slash combat game. Right. Mechton uh, Zeta was my was my favorite one there. Um, Cyberpunk also by Altosaurian Games. I loved Cyberpunk back in the day. Never got the, got not into Shadowrun, but I never had a good group to play with, so that's probably why. And the only other game I can think of that I became really fond of for a while. Um, there was a game called uh, Weapons of the Gods, which was a Chinese wuxia role-playing game. Uh, oh. And it was created by... Um, actually, cre- it's based on a Chinese comic called Weapons of the Gods, but it's actually hmm. the game itself was actually made by Americans. It was actually created by Americans. And that was a pretty amazing game. It was meant for playing really high-level martial arts, like, you know, characters flying around and doing all sorts of weird martial arts. That was actually a really awesome game. It's, I don't think it's in print any longer, but that was actually a truly awesome game. Um, there was a similar game that came around at the same time called Exalted that I was a little bit fond of. Um, that that was more of a Western Wuxia-type game system. I think Wuxia, Exalted is still around. Um, and uh, I was fond of the, I think it was the second edition of that. That was not, not bad. I think I only ran it once, though, but it wasn't too bad. Um, I mean, there are lots of other games I've played. I mentioned Rifts. I mean, in my time, th- like 30 years of gaming, I've played or ran almost every game on the market. But I've, but those are my favorites, I guess you could say. My favorites, again, going back to it, are the generic ones, ones that I myself can, <laughs> can customize and tinker with to do whatever I want with. Hmm. Turning it back on you, Chad. What were your What are your favorite games? Yeah, um, I would say that actually looking back over all the games that I really enjoyed, or and, and a lot of times these weren't even games I even played. I just owned them, and I wish I could have played them. Like I may have played them once in a while, but you know, uh, never had like long campaigns. Where I tend to be sort of drawn towards the odder games that had like weird ideas in them. Okay. Um, so I loved uh, Second Edition Gamma World, which was the uh, the, the gonzo post-apocalyptic <laughs> game where, you know, you could run around as a mutant polar bear with a stop sign for a shield. Mm-hmm. Like, I loved that. I just loved And the, the setting was in really nuts. And that's what I loved about it. Like, the creatures were all bizarre. Uh, what was that, that that thing you used to say, Don, about in, in that setting of that game, uh, the term keep off the grass, they oh, mean it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah they mean it. Because <laughs> remember, the grass in that game can teleport explosive seed pods into your body. If you get too close, to yeah. It. yeah. <laughs> so I just, I really loved that, that kind of craziness. Um, there was uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the game. Mm-hmm. That was Palladium's game. And again, it had that same weirdness. The setting of that game was very odd. Like it was almost, um, 
I think again, Don, you 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 summed it up nicely as like it's like a bunch of weird mutant animals in a world where there's little pockets of mad science yeah. running amok. You know, so the, the characters play as these kind of mutant creatures that are trying to stay out of the limelight or stay in the shadows, and and then dealing with oddball threats. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there was that um, a game I really had a huge fondness for was uh, Beyond the Supernatural, which was a, a Palladium horror game, which. You played as like sort of psychic, like psychic or psychic sensitive characters fighting monsters, um, and just some of the ideas in it were so nuts, and it was great. <laughs> you know, they had um, there was a character, a character class in that game called the Nega Psychic, who was like a he was like a, a a stout disbeliever of anything supernatural, and by having that sort of you know um, um, that that sort of mindset, it actually in a weird about way protected them from supernatural things because mm. they almost had like a psychic barrier in their head. <laughs> so, you know, like vampires couldn't mind control them because they, well, there's no such thing as vampires. So, you know, you waving your hand in front of my face, that's not doing anything. You know, it's that kind of thing. So I love that. Just that, I guess I was drawn towards, and that's I think why I always have a fondness for uh, first, the, or I guess the red box mm-hmm. Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons. There's sort of a, a, a kookiness to it. A kind of almost like fly by the seat of your pants, you know, uh, the world isn't terribly thought out. It's just almost random. You know, you can have this little village and then down the road is a dungeon with monsters crawling in it. <laughs> right. You know? And the two don't seem to, oddly enough, never overlap each other. So it's just that, you know, and the monsters are kind of weird and, you know, you had your standard dragons and stuff. And then you have some really oddball things like hook horrors, which were underground vulture monsters with hooks for hands like just (laughs) weird things like that i just loved it so i think that's where i tended to kind of focus more was on anything that just had interesting ideas in it Hmm. Hmm. but of course i also loved i also love the uh the superhero stuff too that was pretty fun but i think rob only once we started uh goofing around with it and stopped and when we stopped taking it seriously okay well you know we did the beneficial few uh adventures yes which um I mentioned earlier, it was basically we decided to make like really screwy superheroes. Like we had the Snowman and uh, what were some of the other ones? The Taco Avenger and um, yep, the Taco Avenger. Like just... Yeah. <laughs> no, was it the Nacho uh, Avenger? There's the Nacho Avenger. The Nacho Avenger because right. <laughs> yeah. he, he he had like an attack that he could spray out like like cheese and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> there was the uh, the Mall Samurai who could if he was in a mall he was almost unstoppable, but if you got him outside of a mall he was very weak. Yeah. <laughs> If he was in malls, I remember that. Yeah, we would play those. He, he could, yeah, he could heal himself by eating um, food court food. So, yeah, it was... <laughs> so the idea was to make these really gonzo characters and then put them up against like regular serious villains. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just see how they dealt with them. Yeah. I think there wasn't the team based out of Hoboken. I, I seem to recall that. <laughs> I think you're confusing it with like the Superhero League of Hoboken, New Jersey. There was a there was a computer like game that. called The Heroes of Hoboken or something like. Oh, that. Oh, you're right, you're right, right. But I know we had it. I thought based it was, no, it was stupid... based here. It was based in London, Ontario. I thought was it yeah. okay? Maybe it was. I remember. It's, I remember it's, it's being weird. based because I remember you guys having a fight in a mall. Of course, mall samurai. In there was an old mall called the Center Town Mall. That was basically a rundown mall in the in the center of the city. Um, and I remember you guys had a fight there at one point in one of the games, because that's where the villain was actually. <laughs> the villain was basically hiding out. The bad guys were hiding out there, and you guys attacked them, and that was you know. Uh, okay. And the, so the mall samurai's powers came into play. It's, 
essentially at that stage we were basically playing yeah you know the uh what's like the tick basically role-playing game at that point <laughs> right I mean, yeah we were just having fun with it just the absurdity of superheroes which you know okay that's yeah and i remember that although ironically enough that's not the stuff i remember fondly i remember for our game because chad and i played as played together as uh in high school which we didn't know dawn until later um mm. i the fun i remember the the vnv campaign that we played in your parents mm. basement and that to me oh, yeah. that was was it dave johnson was running it i think it was no, I think I oh, was. Oh no, you actually. were. You're right. You right. were. Yes, yeah, I remember yeah, you were yeah. writing. Yeah, you're right. You were running. That to me was like one of the most significant and significant uh gaming experiences of my life. That was one I haven't hmm. played many campaigns that I truly loved, but that was one of the very few. And um that was my first I think it's also hmm? I think it was noteworthy because it also went on a lot. Like yeah. it was one of the, you know, when you when you play these kind of games what would happen is if you had a group of people, and I'm sure you found this as well, Don, is that you sort of took you, – you'd play a game for a little bit and then you'd take turns. Someone else would run a different game. Mm-hmm. So the, the campaigns never went on that long. But that one that Rob's mentioning is kind of noteworthy because it's one of the few cases where the game actually had – it went on for a pretty decent amount of time. Yeah, I see yeah I, at least a year, I think, or close to it. Something like yeah. that, yeah. We were playing every Sunday, and we did. We went on all sorts of adventures. We got our butts kicked by all sorts of villains. Um, <laughs> and I, I think also because it went on so long, it started becoming increasingly stranger. Of course, that's also my own taste. There's that so, too, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> There's that too. Well, uh, and um, so as an end result, um, yeah, that was that campaign to me is like superhero gaming. Like in a lot of ways that campaign was one of the things I always sought in my own superhero games to actually replicate. So I was, in a way I was copying you as a GM, Chad. Um, so that's, um, so yeah, that became one of the things anyway, when I was doing superhero gaming that really, uh, that really stuck with me. And so anyway, but so, yeah, so, okay. So Don, how about you? What games are your favorites? Wow. Okay. Well, not including Akrima City, which is the greatest role-playing game ever written. Which we all know that, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, oh, there's so many. I think the ones that I Before enjoyed... someone Googles Akrima City, Don's talking about his own unpublished <laughs> role-playing game that's been play-tested. It's been in beta testing for like 20 years. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> 20 more and it'll be ready for publishing. Yep. You guys are going to make me cry. <laughs> anyway. No, we're going to make you actually publish the damn game. That's what we're going to make you do. Oh. All right, sorry, try. continue. <laughs> okay. Well, there's so many. I think the games over the years that I like the most is the original Chill. Right? Oh, okay. Which, which it's a horror game. It's basically, if you've ever seen, like, any of the old Hammer House of Horror films, mm-hmm. it's that, the role-playing game. Right? Hmm. I loved that. Uh, Call of Cthulhu, we played to death. Cyberpunk, we played to absolute death. Right. Um, I liked uh, Torg. Torg was an interesting game. What was that? That was the one. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like backwards rifts. Like the idea was that these extra dimensional beings attack Earth because they feed on probability, like possibility energy, and Earth has unlimited possibility. And they'd slam down in an area and bring their own reality with them. And when their reality took over, it would limit the possibility, and they'd drain that bleed off power for their evil machinations so if you went to these different areas the laws of physics work differently so there's um if you go to the middle east it's this it's uh this like pulp hero 
type land mm-hmm. and the rules for reality work differently. So basically the more daring and over the top the action you try to do, the easier it is to do. Hmm. So if your character tries tying his shoes, he's probably going to trip and hit his head. But if you want to jump from a helicopter onto a half track and punch out the Nazis on board, like, yeah, that's easy. You get all kinds of bonuses. Hmm. Okay. And that, that was a good one. And I actually did like the, uh, the, the nineties, uh, world of darkness stuff. Hmm. Okay. Why? Which would be, what was that? And what was that exactly? Like, Oh, it was, uh, they did a vampire werewolf mage. Oh, okay. Like that. They, I enjoyed them because, um, it was interesting. They were very emo Hmm. and I normally hate that, but they took the time in the setting to come up with reasons for it. So for instance, vampires are all like these old fashioned trapped in the Victorian era, er, her, her, her types because their brains harden that after, oh. after a few hundred years, they lose like the mental flexibility to adapt to new times. Okay. And I, and I, and I thought that's a clever way of explaining why you see all these, like, you know, the diehard emo goth vampires are always these weird romantic era, Victorian type things. Well, they made that make sense. And I thought that's brilliant. And it, mm. it was, it was entertaining for that. Hmm. That's cool. Okay. I, I could totally see that. Yeah. And they, well, they did think them through. Yeah. They definitely thought through the World of Darkness games. I have one or two of them as well. And yep, they mm-hmm. did a great job of thinking them through. Unfortunately, they became more derivative as they went, but that's because they were running out of ideas. There's only so much they could do with them. But the first ones were very well thought through. That's true. Yeah. If you got basically the, uh, the, the original book and the Game Master book for any of the ones they put out, those were great. Mm. And then sort of pick and choose what supplements you got into after that. Right. Yeah, makes sense. Huh. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think probably this is a good point to stop since we're going to be coming back to this topic again and we don't want to let this podcast go on for too much longer. Um, <laughs> any, well, not this particular we don't want to let this episode go on too long or we'll bore our audience because the three of us could probably sit around and tell gaming stories and we haven't even gotten to like the great campaigns we ran or any of that stuff like that. And so although we've touched on, we've I think each touched on at least one of them anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we better, you know, table this for now and we'll come back at some point and talk about fantasy gaming and superhero gaming and, and horror gaming. Yep. So any final thoughts, Don? Uh, I don't know. I think, um, the, the thing that I I take away since, like I say, and I'm going to puff up my nerd cred a little bit, since I consider myself like a 1.5 generation gamer, it is interesting to see how what used to got you like made fun of and prior to that exercised by the local priest has become such a prevalent public, generally accepted kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And I also find it funny that the uh, people who used to laugh at me for playing Dungeons and Dragons are now obsessively watching it that it's called Game of Thrones. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty good. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. You're right. They all went and saw Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and they're all mm-hmm. like obsessing about Game of Thrones. Good point. Good point. <laughs> uh, um, if anything, I'm surprised Game of Thrones hasn't caused a huge new upswing in uh, fantasy role-playing. Yeah, true. But maybe, but well, also, didn't video games kind of wreck that, or they sort of undermine? I it think they extent? did. I think what's happening is instead of doing fantasy role playing, they're all going and playing um, 
I know World of Warcraft's not that popular anymore. Whatever the current popular fantasy massively multiplayer online game is probably what they're doing instead. Or they're pl- or just something on their Nintendo 3DS. Or, or, or they're playing a computer game, yeah. Yeah, they were playing computer games instead. Although I have heard that there is actually, or has been in the last couple of years, an actual bit of a renaissance revival in tabletop role-playing going on. Yeah. I have heard that it's actually been coming back into into vogue again for a little while, or has been for the last couple of years. So maybe Game of Thrones the, has been helping. Yeah. And is that is that have anything to do with like sort of the, that weird resurgence with? Um, it's not even a resurgence; it's just sort of this burst of like uh, of board games are very popular yep, now. Yep. Yeah. An expansion of, on that, I think. And war games. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That's true. I mean, it's very natural for people to say start playing uh, war games, especially the like the Warhammer game, for example. There's still um, Games Workshop stores. There's one here in London in a local mall. Kids go in there and play. I mean, um, and of course, we just had on a couple episodes ago. We had uh, James Wegg of uh, No Dice Games, and talking mm-hmm. about card games and that. So people play the card games. They play the war games. And then especially from the war games, it's very easy to graduate, ironically enough, just to role-playing games and tabletop role-playing games. Yeah. Hmm. It's very easy to go from – it's a – you know, it's kind of like a gateway drug in a lot of ways, I think, for a lot of people. <laughs> uh, you know, ironic that. How about you, Chad? Any thoughts about uh, role-playing games before we get going? Well, again, like you, Rob, it's uh, I, it's been a very long time since I ever actually played one. Mm-hmm. Um, I have like a fondness for them, obviously, because there's a nostalgic – aspect to them mm-hmm. um i'm more curious to see I, i'm actually to an extent i'm actually amazed they're still around i've noticed that they they sort of mostly appear now online like there's a there's a place called driveinrpg.com mm-hmm. i came across and it seems to really be promoting this idea of like now if you just want to make your own game up and sell it here's a place to do it because you know why bother putting out a an actual you know, book when, you know, a PDF would work just as well. More people might actually, you know, access your game that way than they would with a little hardcover, actual printed matter. That's true. You know, mm-hmm. um, but it seems to me like that's what it's sort of uh, evolved into. Mm-hmm. And it's become much more specialized now. Like it's, you know, I, you know, back in the 80s, I can remember walking into any given hobby store and there was always like a, a sizable role playing game selection. Oh, yes. Like a rat, mm-hmm. right? Like there was, there was, you know, nowadays, unless you go specifically to a, uh, like a, a, a board game store, you won't find that sort of thing anymore. You have to kind of look now a little, mm-hmm. a little harder. If you, if you want the physical ones, right, yes. what I'm saying, mm-hmm. you know, so, so maybe this is just sort of its natural evolution. I could see that. Is to do that. Makes sense. Right? Hmm. That's true. I guess that's one way to look at it. Well, you know, like anything, it waxes and wanes. I think, I think we're going to get a bit of a, kind of this is just my final thoughts on i think that the augmented reality and the virtual reality um uh what are the what's the correct term uh revolutions that are coming you know the developments and those technologies that are coming are de- are as usual going to encompass role playing games i mean you know if you can literally through virtual reality go on a first person adventure with your friends and that i mean that's pretty awesome right Right. So we're going to mm-hmm. see that, but at the same time, I have a feeling that's going to kill pen and paper and just doing it the old imagination way even more. Maybe. I'm wrong. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. On the other hand, augmented reality, I've already seen some people doing some neat stuff with where you know, you, there are people are 
doing you know they're all wearing glasses or they all have like tabletop screens or whatever and then they got a dungeons mapped out and so stuff is popping up on the dungeon it creates it into a kind of augmented game board that you can mm-hmm. play stuff on mm-hmm. so i've seen that too and that might actually even encourage some like role-playing type stuff it's hard to say i mean yeah. i don't think role-playing games are going to go away permanently i think they actually are a part of human culture now and i know that other cultures do actually play them but again we'll cover that in another episode there are non-English speaking cultures that do play these things mm-hmm. but I don't think they're ever going to be as big as they were once upon a time during our um, teen years and such I think they've kind of had their golden age and I don't think another golden age of them is coming that's my somewhat pessimistic take on them but who knows I hope <laughs> I'm wrong right all right, and on that incredibly depressing note... Um, again. Again, yeah, well, sorry to finish up on a depressing note. Um, so, actually, Don, no, let's finish on a high note. So, Don, do you mm-hmm. remember the story you told me about a game that you ran of Cyberpunk where the guy was standing next to the pit going 23, 23, 23? Was it 23? Oh. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah, do you want to, you want to like tell that. that story and we'll finish on that? For some reason, that okay. story has always stuck with me. It's kind of a Now, you remember the cyberpunk one, but I've used this a lot of times in different games. Right. It's kind of an old joke, but I think it's when old people know, so the youngins might not. <laughs> but they come up to this big crevice and there's this the players. guy. Yeah, the, the, the players group comes up and this guy's staring into it yelling, 23, 23, 23. They're like, what the hell is this guy doing? They're like, what are you doing? He's looking in the pit, and he looks over, looks back in the pit. 23! 23! One of the players is like, I'm going to go find out what this is. Goes over, looks into the pit, doesn't see anything. Squints his eyes, looks really hard. As he's looking, the guy pushes him from behind. Dude falls into the pit, dies. Original guy at the side starts yelling, 24! 24! 24! Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was I, I don't know why. That that's always I've always found that incredibly funny, especially since I'm not the, I was never the character who fell in the pit. <laughs> but uh, we can talk we'll talk gaming stories in another episode. On that mm. note, thanks for listening everyone. Um hopefully we've helped to resurrect a few gaming memories and those of you who uh did some tabletop gaming in your in your own times. Um, feel free to drop by our Facebook group, Operatives of the Department of Nerdly Affairs, or come to the website at obeythedna.com and uh, post a comment. Tell, tell us about your gaming experiences and uh, if we did bring back any memories for you. Or if you disagree with things that we talked about, feel free to comment on that too. That works. Okay, on that note... Tune in next time to talk about something that's really cool and not in any way connected with Star Wars. Although, you know what? For the uh, Star Wars role-playing game D6 edition, I did do a holiday special supplement. You did? You're a very evil, evil man, (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about that another time as well. All right. Good night, folks. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!